So uh, we're in Revelation tonight, uh, and chapter 2, so the second of uh, the letters that we find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which are written to seven different uh, churches, Uh, and I'm just going to read it again, it's a very, very short uh, little letter. So to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the the words of the first and the last. Who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Uh, So Tom and I were both uh, in Lisbon this week. Uh, We were at a, a conference for European church planters. Uh... And on uh, Tuesday morning, I I was speaking uh, to these uh, planters who are from about 22 different European countries, I think, and uh, so about 250 of them there. So I I thought I would start off with a sort of uh, humble joke about being Scottish. Uh, So I told them a joke uh, that was once told to me by a Hungarian. So in 1989... uh, I met a Hungarian who had lived all his life behind the Iron Curtain. This was the year the Berlin Wall came down. So I said, you know, what do, what do you know about Scotland, having lived all your life in the Soviet bloc? And he said, well, let me tell you a joke. So he said, uh, there are three men in a pub. One is Hungarian, one is English, and one is Scottish. Uh, and they've all got a pint of beer. And a fly comes along and it lands in the Hungarian's pint of beer. So he looks at it in disgust, takes it back to the bar and gets himself another drink. And then a fly comes along and uh, it lands in the pint of beer for the Englishman. And uh, he sort of looks in disdain, picks out the fly, throws it away and drinks his pint. And then a fly comes along and lands in the Scotsman's pint of beer... So he picks up the fly, wrings out the beer, throws the fly away and then drinks his pint. Uh, And so I said, Scottish people are very mean, but uh, God still loves us. So if he loves us, he can love all Europeans. Well, anyway, for the rest of the day, I had people coming up to me going, I did not understand your joke. Uh, And uh, even even, uh, the other English speakers from across the pond, there was a few Americans there, were saying to me, uh, what do you mean by mean? Uh, because they think somebody who's mean is kind of angry and nasty, where I was meaning stingy and grippy, as in Aberdonian meanness. And uh, so I started to think, you know, by what means do we determine the meaning of mean? And uh, there are four different meanings of the word mean once we start to think about it. So the point of that is to say words are really... Uh, confusing sometimes, we lose the definition of words, uh, we stop to think about the real meaning behind the, the language we use. And in the Christian life, actually, the language we use 
is very important. And one of the words that we uh, don't often think about enough is just this idea, this word, church. Okay? So, especially if you've grown up in the church, we assume a lot of things about it without really thinking it through. People outside the church don't often really know what the church is about, and that's because people inside the church often have forgotten what church is really about. Church for some of us is Sunday, it's a meeting. Church for some of us is St. Columba's, it's a building. But, of course, when we start to think through what the New Testament teaches to us about the church, it immediately becomes clear church is not about meetings or events or buildings. It's a community of people. But it's a very distinct community of people. It's a community of people who are inhabited by the risen and reigning Saviour, Jesus Christ. And that's really important for the book of Revelation because the church is going through a crisis. And so John, as he writes to the churches, he wants to really instill with them or within them a great sense of what it is to be the church, to know that they are a community loved by Christ, created by Christ, kept by Christ and empowered by Jesus Christ. The church, in other words, is extraordinary. And it's an amazing privilege for you and I to belong to the church of Jesus Christ, to be counted among his people if we're believers. But along with being or with enjoying that privilege, often there's a cost associated. And at that cost, the heat of being a Christian, the the heat of belonging to the church was really coming down hard uh, at the end of the first century when the book of Revelation was written. So this is written post-90 AD, maybe around 95 AD. And uh, there is a severe persecution against the church. And it's into that situation that the Apostle John is speaking to bring strength and hope. It's a time of struggle for the church, a time when the church is beginning to compromise morally, a church when the first generation of believers is dying out and some of the passion for Jesus is being lost, and a church now that is facing strong uh, persecution. So how does the book of Revelation begin? What's chapter 1 about? Well, chapter 1... Uh, in the book of Revelation, is a, a vision of the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me just share a little bit uh, with you. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is chapter 1. On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
when I saw my fell at his feet as though dead. So what's John doing? John has given us and giving them a vision of Jesus that is so great that they will understand that Jesus is a saviour worth living for and worth dying for. That it's worth being willing to sacrifice greatly to belong to Jesus and to belong to his church. And that's a message that's real and pertinent for Christians today in some parts of the world. It will cost you your life occasionally to follow Jesus Christ. But for all of us, there is a cost to taking up the cross and following Jesus. For every Christian, there is suffering. And when suffering comes to the Christian, that's often difficult and confusing for us. No matter how dark life gets then, John wants to say you have a great saviour. One that you can worship and love, trust and obey in all the situations of life. One of, these, uh, one of the recipients uh, in Smyrna of this letter was a young man called Polycarp. Uh, so probably about the same age as many of the young men here today. Sixty years later, Polycarp was the bishop of the church in Smyrna uh, and was martyred uh, for his faith. And so even here, uh, 60 years before, Polycarp has been ministered to uh, as God prepares him for the cost of discipleship. And so as we look ahead into life, we can be sure that it will cost us to follow Jesus in different ways. How are we going to live for Christ in this world? And we will live for Christ if we are gripped by a passionate love for him and a view of his glory, that he is a saviour worth living for and worth dying for. So let's look at the letter. Uh, it begins, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now that's an echo from chapter 1. So in chapter 1, uh, when John falls at his feet as though dead, Jesus lays his right hand on John and says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am forevermore. And so now to the letter in the church in Smyrna, again Jesus says, The first and the last, the one who is dead but now is alive. By reminding them of this, Jesus is saying to them, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. That's what he said to John. Fear not. I am the first and the last. And so as he speaks to the Christians in Smyrna, he's saying the same thing. Whatever your circumstances in life, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm the living one. I was dead. But behold, I am alive forever and ever. Jesus is the source of life and strength for every Christian. As the risen saviour, he's reminding us that he's in control. Absolute and total control. He's defeated death and all his enemies. Now, 
suffering is difficult for us at many levels. But one of the hard things about suffering, of course, is that it can be very difficult to deal with because we're not in control of our situation. Stuff happens to us. And sometimes terrible things happen to us. Things that we really uh, struggle with. And we, 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 we find them really hard to come to term with, terms with. Because we're not in control. There's nothing we can do about them. There's nothing that we can stop, do to stop them. Uh, I remember scooting through a roundabout in Kirkcaldy once. Hitting a patch of diesel. And my car just went right round the roundabout all on its own without me having any control whatsoever. Very scary moment. And life can feel a scary place to be for some people at some points. And your life probably feels like a scary place for you occasionally. But he's in control. We may often feel fragile. But Christ is risen. And he reigns over all situations. And that means that we're safe. As long as Christ reigns, Christ's people are safe. So he's in control. Uh, the second thing is, he, he says, I know your tribulations. I know your afflictions. I know what's going on. So one of the other difficult things about suffering sometimes is just this fact that we feel really alone. We feel misunderstood. Nobody quite knows what we're going through. Uh, we don't feel really able to speak about the hurt that we're experiencing. We don't know how to verbalize it. We don't want to be a burden to others. Or we just don't. Uh, feel that we have anyone to turn to. Uh, jazz singer Louis Armstrong once sang, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. So in that little gospel song, there's a profound truth. There are things that probably nobody knows. But Jesus knows. I know your affliction. And the amazing thing about Jesus, of course, is that he knows affliction from the inside out. Because he tells us, in all your afflictions, I am afflicted. What is their suffering like? Well, he says, I know your poverty. Now, Smyrna was a really wealthy city. It was an economic powerhouse. It's Manhattan, or the city of London, or Macau, or Hong Kong. It's a place where people went to make a lot of money. But in the midst of all that prosperity, the Christians were suffering because they were being uh, discriminated against economically. So people didn't want to do business with them anymore, didn't want to trade with them. They were really hurting financially. So there was a real financial cost to being a Christian and living with Christian ethics and Christian integrity. But what does Jesus say? He says... Okay, financially you've, you, you've suffered. You've taken a massive hit. But you are rich. Rich in what sense then? Rich in the terms that they have Christ as their saviour. That they have the hope of eternity. They're rich spiritually. They're rich because they have God. There's a saying that uh, Augustine had. Which was this. He who is Christ plus everything has no more than he who is Christ alone. And so in that sense they are still rich. Jesus tells us that he 
though he was rich, became poor, so that through his poverty we might be made rich. Rich in hope, rich in love, rich in joy, rich in peace. We have great riches in Jesus Christ. And they're being slandered, aren't they? There's the poverty and the economic discrimination. There's the slander of those who speak against them. Vicious, cruel worlds. There's prison. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, he says in verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulations. Be faithful unto death. Polycarp was faithful to death. He was burned at the stake. So what is going on when Christians suffer like this? Well, the devil, we're told here, is going to test them, push them, try their faith, see if it's genuine, see if Christ really is everything to them, or if their lives are driven by different passions. The devil is going to test them even to the point of death. And they're being told this in advance. You see, God knows what's going to happen to them. God knows how deeply they're going to suffer. But God doesn't prevent it from happening. God permits all this. But what he says is that he will permit no more than they can bear. So there's this kind of slightly obscure reference for us. You're going to be tested, and then for ten days you will have tribulation. So as far as I can work out, the ten days is just saying it's a set period of time. This will happen for a while, but it won't go on forever. I'm going to allow it to happen, but I won't let it be more than you can take. And the great thing about God is this, that he promises he will not let us be tried beyond what we can bear. And uh, he will give us grace for every sorrow. Uh, I remember my own dad saying to me, uh, he, he uh, died a long time ago, but he, uh, he, in the months before he died, he said to, to me, uh, I've always been afraid of death, uh, but I'm not anymore. God gives us grace when we need it for the things that we need it for. And so whatever you're going to suffer in life, if you're a Christian, you can believe and know God will not leave you short in the circumstances that you're afraid of. The things you fear the most, God will make them a peace to you. He will make them a place of grace for you. He will make them a place where he is present for you. So there are great theological truths here in the letter to the church in Smyrna that we need to hold on to in order to maintain perspective when things are tough. There are things we need to hold on to, truths that will allow us to remain true to our gospel calling and to bear witness to Christ even when it's tough. God is always in control. That's one thing we know. We are always rich. That's another thing we know. We have always things to be thankful for. We will never be asked to carry what we cannot bear. 
and God's grace will always be sufficient. So they're told, be faithful even to the point of death. Why? Well, what we have in Smyrna are two ideas of death, isn't it? Be faithful unto death, we're told in verse 10. And then in verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So we're told here there are two kinds of death. There's physical death and there's spiritual and eternal death. Physical death will separate us from this world and comes to every one of us. Eternal death separates us from God and will not come to everyone. If we're united to Christ by faith, then there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We can face even death without fear. We can face anything without fear. Because the one who is most important to us can never be taken from us. We will always have Jesus. So that's the kind of way that God lays this out in front of us then, is to say, do you have that hope? Will there be a time when you will be separated eternally from God? Are you ready? That's what he's asking these Christians. Are they going to stay true? Are they ready? It's really interesting. Uh, one In the seven letters, this is the only letter without uh, condemnation or criticism. All we find in this letter are words of encouragement. Because God has said to them, be faithful to me in these hard situations. And if you're faithful, I will give you the crown of life. You're going to be the Barcelona or the Real Madrid of the spiritual universe. You're going to be champions. You're going to have a gold medal. You're going to celebrate a great victory one day when you stand with Jesus in heaven. So, Jesus is this call in. Take up your cross and follow me. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer a German pastor during the Second World War, was also martyred for his faithfulness to Jesus. And uh, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So we've been asked and called by God to be faithful, to stick with Jesus even when things are hard in life, even when we're hurting when we're sad, when we're lonely, when we feel broken, to be faithful to Jesus. You may be in the midst of a really hard time in your own life, struggling, suffering, doubting, fearful. You may be in a dark tunnel where you feel there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Well, remember this, Jesus does not condemn you for your struggles, your doubts, your crisis. Or your suffering. He just comes alongside you and says, Don't waver. Don't give in. Stay true. 
love me, find your joy in me, keep true to me. And often when we see these things, we say, I can't do it. It feels too much. I feel broken. Life is too hard. And in those situations, Jesus says, I know you can't do it because I know your afflictions. I know how hard it is, but I've done it for you. Jesus was true to God in the dark times. Jesus was persecuted, but was faithful. Jesus was arrested and tortured, but was obedient even to death. And then Jesus rose to eternal life. And he did all of this for us. And so he says to us, I've done all this for you. And now you can do it through me. We have an amazing saviour. He doesn't stand outside our sufferings and tell us to quit moaning and just get on with things. He stands inside our suffering. He stands with us in the darkness and the despair and the difficult times. And he says, I know what it's like. And he went to the darkness. He suffered for us to bear our sorrows. He became poor so that through his poverty we might be rich. So what grace there is in Jesus Christ for us and what kindness. What great and loving saviour we have. So whatever your pain is this evening or your anxiety or your grief, then Jesus says, bring it to me. Jesus invites you to himself as the one in whom you'll find your peace. And Jesus will give you grace to endure. And so, for myself, for you, there's a wonderful invitation and there's a wonderful comfort in the letter to the church at Smyrna. Uh, Jesus knows everything we're going through. Jesus understands it. Jesus allows us to be faithful and enables us to be faithful in the midst of it. And Jesus promises, it's not always going to be like that. And one day, you're going to stand with him in all glory and in all joy, with no more tears. Uh, And that's a hope he gives to the church here. And it's the same hope that we share today. So I'm going to conclude, pray, we'll sing our last song. Father, we want to thank you for your word to us tonight. We pray that the comfort you gave to your church in Smyrna will be the same comfort that we receive here tonight. Lord, our circumstances are varied and hard, but often life just throws so much at us and it bewilders us. But Lord, may we recenter our lives in Christ this evening. May we we be reassured of your heart of love towards us, that you, you empathize with us, you understand us, and you care for us more deeply than we can ever imagine. And so may we turn to you this evening and find that Jesus is our rest and our peace. Help us to take our burdens and our fears to you tonight, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.